You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back for another week. So excited to be here. It's so great to have you once more, Kirk. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Uh, Victoria will be back next week, but for now, mm-hmm. you have two of us here, and I am going to kick things off. Uh, last week, I talked about astrobiology and how likely we are to find particular forms of biology on other worlds. Yep. And Gave I started me another that's... existential crisis. Are you are you over usual? it yet, or is it still like it's still percolating? Okay. Well, I, I started that story by talking about a redditor who had made the mistake of assuming human exceptionalism. And they believe that humans Mm -hmm. must be the end result, the pinnacle of evolution. And some of these ideas have their root in like religions, for example, that talk about humans being special and created apart from the rest of nature. And even though we now know that no humans are a part of nature, uh, you still find this idea pervasive. And even the language we use when we say animals, the assumption is often that we're talking about non-humans. You might say that person's acting like an animal. It's like, well, humans. Right are animals so it's a weird thing to say Um, people talk about intelligence or language or consciousness as being those things that quote separate us from the animals and naturally you don't hear that kind of talk from scientists as much because as we discussed in the show at times um, other animals certainly have intelligence and language and consciousness and heck they even have societies and culture and traditions that they pass on and things like that so um biologists and zoologists and whatnot have, who have studied animals know that no they they are very similar to humans and humans are animals uh, i see right. this distinction between humans and animals a, a lot working with children so if you tell a group of second graders that humans are an example of an animal uh, and you can just watch some of their heads explode. And they're like, not oh, 100%. Yeah, they say humans no, aren't animals. animals. And you're like, well, like, okay, yes, then we are. what are we? Uh, are we plants? Mm. No. It's like, okay. And usually a few like well-read classmates will chime in. We are animals. We're mammals. We're mammals. And it's because they've, they've studied it and mm-hmm. they're excited to share that knowledge. It actually usually leads to some really fun discussions about how we classify animals and why, yes, Humans are animals and humans are mammals. Well, the person we have to thank uh, the most for this classification system is someone we have talked a little bit about on the show. That would be Carl Linnaeus. And uh, I want to talk a bit about Linnaeus today. So Linnaeus was a fascinating guy. He lived in Sweden in the 1700s and he was a botanist. And as we've discussed many times in the show, humans just love, love, love to put things into what, Rachel? Boxes. Yes, little boxes. I don't mean literal boxes. I mean figural bo- figural well, boxes. We do like putting things in actual boxes that, too. That's actually. true as well. But we love to categorize yeah. things as humans. Like we just mm-hmm. we love it. And we Linnaeus love finding came up, patterns. Yeah, Linnaeus came up, looked at some of those patterns, and he came up with a system of binomial nomenclature that we use to this day. That's a big phrase. Binomial basically means two names so we can define every species on earth using two 
words or two names. Prior to this, mm-hmm. species were all described by like essentially a long sentence that described them. <laughs> they didn't have a scientific name. They had like a list of Latin oh, no. words. And of course it was super confusing. And so what we now use is what uh, Linnaeus came up with is the genus and species. Those are the the two words mm-hmm. for, that describes any you know form of life. So genus is the general group that they're in, and then species is a specific type of animal in that group. For humans, our mm-hmm. binomial name is Homo sapiens. So you're familiar with many of these because we use them a lot, and sometimes it's like the only name we have for a species. You hear us stumble yep. over these on the show all the time. <laughs> uh, but all the ones time. we might know, Tyrannosaurus rex is literally the scientific binomial name of the dinosaur, Tyrannosaurus being the genus, Rex being the species. It actually doesn't even have a common name other than T-Rex, which is just the correct scientific shorthand (laughs) way of writing the longer name. So like, we literally only know it by its binomial. That's Uh, amazing. Yeah, right? Uh, Carl Linnaeus was one of the people credited with showing that humans are simply animals, uh, and is often mm-hmm. called the first to classify humans into the animal kingdom, uh, which is really weird since Aristotle proposed the same thing about 2,000 years earlier. That's two Aristotle right. reference, references, by the way, in, in two shows in a row. Um, and right? also, I want to point out, like, I'm not an expert on all world cultures, but I'm pretty sh- sure, you know, we're just talking about, like, Western scientific thinking. There's pr- probably many mm-hmm. cultures who also recognized that humans are animals thousands oh, of years ago 100 and didn't have this weird you know bias that we're not oh no no we're we're, we're separate now mm-hmm. it's pretty great that you know uh he got this right but old carl didn't get everything right and of course uh, not. he had some pretty kooky ideas that were informed by the society <laughs> he lived in uh for example uh-huh. he divided humans into subspecies that Made oh, a lot no. of people kind of uncomfortable because they're essentially what we would describe as races. And his descriptions uh-huh. were, I, I don't know how to say it. They were not scientific, uh, but they were rather like cultural and political descriptions, like literally describing like these people like look like this and they have this type of culture and this type of politics and this type of religion. And you're like, that has uh... nothing to do with what species the they are, Carl. Um, yeah. But again, what, he was a product, doing, Carl? you know, of his, you know, his own culture. Um, mm-hmm. And what's really strange, uh, what I want to talk about is that he also included some subspecies that are bizarre to us today that we would not recognize. Subspecies of humans. He recognized both okay. ho- Homo ferris and Homo monstrosus. What? Yeah. So what let's is, get to these. <laughs> these two groups of humans certainly don't exist, uh, <laughs> at least not as distinct species. So I want to talk about what Carl got wrong. Let's start with Homo yeah. ferus. Uh, this is essentially the feral human. Oh, my and God. And these are humans who grow up in isolation from any society and are perhaps even uh-huh. influenced by wild animals such as wolves and bears. So basically, we're talking about the wild child. Right. I mean, we've okay. all yeah. there's been movies about like, you know, the even the Jungle Book. Right. Is literally a story about right. like uh, this this a child raised child. by, yeah. you know, wolves and bears. Right. 
So Mm -hmm. this idea is found in many cultures and throughout history. I think it may speak to our fear of how thin the veneer of civilization is. Like the idea of a person who is raised truly wild both fascinates and also alarms us. And on a a learning level, probably better helps us understand what is important to us about our societies. And it kind of outlines our fear of like maybe like how close to other animals we really are when we see that sort of Mm -hmm. wild side come out in people. There really aren't wild children or people out there in the woods, uh, but these stories continue to fascinate (laughs) us. And the archetype keeps ringing out throughout the centuries. I mean, just look at how popular Bigfoot stories are, right? And you can see that these... Right, like the in this... The Scottish cat man. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this idea of these wild human creatures, you know, or maybe in some cases, the outside like, of society. And yeah, just, like that's still a they powerful don't idea. Act or a, like they don't abide by common societal rules and everything. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. And so Linnaeus, like I said earlier, was a product of his time. And in his thirst to classify mm-hmm. everything, he seems to have classified things that don't even exist, such as Homo ferus. Right. Now, in his defense, um, there were several documented and popularized cases at the time of like wild children. And I don't know how accurate these or okay. truthful these were, but they were being circulated stories. Oh, in France, there was this, you know, child that was found in the woods who was wild and stuff. And, and, Again, I don't know how accurate they actually were historically, right. but they were in the pop culture at the time. And because he was trying to be thorough as a scientist, you know, you forget that like they didn't have all the tools to actually search the whole world. It was like if someone reported mm-hmm. something to you and you're like, well, that sounds good. It's like, well, I, I want to be complete. I, be- I better I have you know, a way include to... that just in case. Right. So right. I guess it, it, I, I, it is. I don't have a way to confirm this at the moment. Yeah, it's kind of understandable that he wanted to include them in his catalog because it, it seemed like good information to him. But what about Homo monstrosus? Um, as you can guess, I'm gonna these say are, this right now. Yeah, it feels ableist. Oh just yeah, say that. Flat. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, these God. are human monsters. <laughs> in this case, the uh-huh. species group monstrosus was a place to put the things that he didn't understand, right? Okay. Um, and I'm taking the most charitable view here, but like, you know, yeah. there were starting to be reports as people were traveling around the world more about meeting other people. And there was things that he just kind of didn't understand. Like there was people talking about meeting giants, like going to a place where there was these abnormally tall people that were taller than like all the other people in the world. And then something might sail mm-hmm. somewhere and find people that were really, really, really short. And he's kind of like, well, right. this doesn't fit into my nice, neat boxes. Little Speaking box. of boxes, there was also yeah. a popular cultural idea at the time that everything came in fours. You had to divide everything mm. to four. So there was like the four humors. And there was the four different right. subspecies or sort of races of humans. And so when he encountered people, because obviously we all exist on this you know, spectrum of diversity, but that was not mm-hmm. the popular idea at the time. There was this much more simplified idea, probably informed by the fact that there wasn't as much cultural exchange going on. So he was like, well, I don't know what to do with these outliers, right? So he unfortunately right. put them so, in a group, basically calling them monsters. Uh, not not yeah. great, Carl, not great. And like I said, it's easy to fault Linnaeus. Bad look for you. Yeah, for some of his ideas, but at the time he was trying his best to define what his species was. 
And if you know much about science, um, this is something we struggle with even today. And he was at the mm-hmm. very forefront of this. So you can see how his, it's easy with hindsight to look back and go, oh, how silly. But even the idea of what a species was, he was inventing essentially and trying to kind of come up with and, right. and figure out what it is. We don't necessarily agree what a species is today to this no. day. We have a pretty good working definition. But again, the closer you look at stuff, you go, huh. Huh. You know, again, we said well, all the time, were... things don't fit in little boxes. Everything's actually on a continuum. So drawing a line between these two things and saying, this is species A and this is species B, it's probably more right. of like a, well, they kind of bleed into each other as populations uh, change, you know, so. Right. Well, I mean, how many different species do we see, like, hybridizing, you know, Absolutely. and creating a new Absolutely. species? Or well, and there's we, even cases where we did too most distinct of this. And, yeah, yeah, we did most of this work by just looking at things. And now that we have D- yeah. D- DNA analysis, I know from my work with birds and some of the papers I've read that there are certain times where they will take um, essentially a feather from different from different birds mm-hmm. and test the DNA, and they'll go, "Oh, you know what? There are two different distinct populations, or maybe four or eight populations of this one species, but mm-hmm. they." have a slightly different call maybe they don't interbreed even when their populations overlap they have different wintering grounds they have different behaviors they eat different food like they look mm-hmm. identical and if it was in your hand you could not tell it apart unless you did a dna analysis and you go is that a different species right or is exactly. that a subspecies like where do we draw these lines even today mm-hmm. we don't necessarily know or we argue <laughs> over where to draw these we lines. We argue all the time. What they are, yeah. So, well, I mean, how many different things got recategorized once, like into different families or different orders or different groups? When it happens, it happens every year. Yeah, when things are constantly being all shift, the time shifted because as we learn more. We didn't have DNA, and now we do, and it's like, oh well, now we can figure out where who shares the most amount of DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wild. So, to his credit. Um, he didn't just form this idea of like how to divide species up and then be like, all right, I'm done. You know, mm-hmm. that's it. You can actually see through his writing that it, his ideas evolved and changed over time as he got better and better information. So that's really interesting mm-hmm. to see that, you know, he was, he was kept on trying to refine it and be like, Ooh, you know, my first idea, forget that. This isn't the new idea. So he was part of that process of refining our knowledge over time. He was a scientist who was working to improve his system as information That's changed. what science is. He was unfortunately, certainly informed by the racism of his time though. Uh, his mm-hmm. descriptions of each subspecies of humans is particularly distasteful. Uh, I'm not even going to read them here. Ooh. You can search them out online if you're really curious. But I, I think that the mistakes he made highlight a central idea of science. And that's that we have to start somewhere. We make mm-hmm. our best attempt to describe the world and we try as hard as we can to remove our own biases and cultural hangups. But being impartial and being aware of our own biases is really, really hard. We've certainly got yeah. a lot better about it over time. Right. And the, if the, the mistakes that he made, if you made them now, you would be drummed out of be, the field. I mean, yeah, yeah, you'd be uh, shunned. Because the science has become much more like, rigorous over time and how we do these things. 
And so I think we've certainly got a lot better about it over time as we become more aware of the importance to good science. But even the topics we choose to research are informed by our current culture and society, right? Mm -hmm. So there are certain scientific biases that we have now that will likely be harshly judged by the future. And we're just completely blind to the fact that people are going to be like, I can't believe you guys didn't study this. You spent so much time on this. Exactly. Uh, There are likely things we are getting wrong right now because of our blind spots. And we don't know what they are because we're not in the future yet (laughs) to know like we, it's hard to get around your own, your own culture and your own uh, Mm -hmm. biases. And it's something scientists work on a lot and have to always be working on to make sure that we want the science to just be the facts, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's, it's very difficult. So my thoughts this week have been a little bit winding, uh, but I wanted to think about humans place in nature and how our thoughts about it have changed over time. So looking at how we view ourselves in relation to the rest of nature is a fascinating way to take a snapshot of a culture's current place in time and history. Our current view mm-hmm. is a reflection of our current society as well. And I'll leave you with a, as, with a thought. For every second grader that grows up learning humans are animals, uh, there are many who grow up never learning it and still believing in like mm-hmm. human exceptionalism. They grow up believing humans are not governed by the rules of nature. And as we face climate change and other environmental crises, we can see in the slow response or the unwillingness to accept that we too are governed by the same rules that affect all animals on earth, that ideas that were mm-hmm. popular thousands of years ago on human exceptionalism and separation from nature persist to this day. And that yeah. is probably not a great thing. Carl's ideas about the different subspecies of humans seem strange to us today, but likely some of our ideas will seem strange to those in the future. Our view of humans and our place in nature is shaped by our culture. And while science has worked to be impartial and remove those cultural views that cloud the truth, we too are governed by the culture of our time and will be judged by those in the future, both by our actions and by our inactions. Mm-hmm. Very profound, Kirk. Well, I was getting a little heavy there, but uh, you know, it's, it's it's a it's it has huge implications for us as a species. It, yeah, there's that it word. It really species. does. <laughs> well, look. Also, I, like, what a two existential crises in two weeks. I uh, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. Hope you're. I'm gonna start that tally. I still haven't started that. Well, it should be it should be fun. Great. Well, let's let's go to a break. Give her a little palate cleanser, take a breath, and we'll come back and we'll hear from Rachel. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strangebynature. See you soon.
All right. This week, I also have a little bit of a different topic for what I normally do. I decided to try something a little new this week. Okay. Um, but it, it's really funny that you were talking about Carl Linnaeus this week and the classification of uh, people because oh I wanted gosh. to talk about something that doesn't necessarily break those boxes, but is a phenomenon that goes into convergent evolution quite a bit. Ooh, okay, Have you ever heard yeah. of carcinization? Is this everything turning into crabs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was... I, I, episode 127 there it is uh i knew this would happen i literally was it had thinking to happen about eventually this last week when i was thinking about last week's episode with um oh, right. you know exobiology or you know um astrobiology and this idea of like what's the most likely Everything thing for life to look like and yeah on earth things just seem to everything crabs. seems to eventually turn into crabs from an evolutionary standpoint and so i was like with this person, when that person I read it was asking about what alien life would look like, my first thought was probably crabs. Crabs. You know? Yeah. Seems to be a Or maybe like an insect. It seems to just really, really work, that that body plan. So tell us all about carcinization. For those people who don't know what it is and are like, what are you guys talking about? This is so cool. Okay. So the other word for it, or at least the word that I've been using for it, is crabification. Yeah. I don't think that's a... I, I I like that word better than carcinization, but carcinization is the official term for it. Yeah. So yeah. it is a it is an example of convergent evolution, which is generally when two very separate groups have similar they independently evolve certain traits that are the same. Like for yeah. example, how bats and birds and insects all have wings. Yeah, yeah. For example. But they're clearly not closer related they're and did not, not evolve the same, from the same yeah, place. Right. The pressures somehow, the pressures that caused that evolution caused that species to evolve that particular trait. I'm not going to get into the very... Yeah, and they had, but they had to evolve it. it out of the materials available to them. So like if you're a mammal, exactly. all you have available is skin. You Humans can't grow feathers, so a bat has mm-hmm. skin wings. And a... A bird, which was a reptile, could grow scales and you can make and those scales longer and longer and longer and get feathers, you know. So it's like, and, mm-hmm. and insects, again, different kind of thing, but it's oh, similar yeah. structure. Structure follows need, right? Exactly. So the idea is that in crustaceans, um, in crustaceans, the general structure of a crab, so a flat round shell a tail apparently crabs have tails i didn't know they had tails okay (laughs) they are folded underneath the body Mm -hmm. uh that's generally what that is and then legs off to the side sure it has evolved by at least five separate times among crustaceans that's so amazing so generally it's wild and it's generally the group that is crabs, lobsters, and shrimp. We don't know why this is happening. I mean... Scientists has n- 
I mean, it seems to be a very ideal body plan. Well, that's we the thing. When you have, if you have a gen underlying genetics that makes certain body structures possible, and then you mm -hmm. over millions of years have animals that keep on encountering the same pressures, right? You know, evolution is going to follow the <laughs> easiest path, and if there's a way to come up with that, it'll keep coming up with that same body plan again and again. Because guess what? It's possible with the underlying genetics, and it works. Mm-hmm. So crustaceans in particular, this is a larger group of critters, of animals. They have gone from looking, several different uh, groups of them have looked like a lobster, so like a more, a longer body, right. to uh, over time gone shorter and shorter and shorter and folding that tail underneath. Mm-hmm with a much less prominent tail, creating a crab-like animal. That makes so, sense, okay. Yeah, so for example, like they, it's gotten to the point where scientists have to have like true crabs and then there's false crabs. Mm. And it, it, because it's evolved in so many different ways, it's, it's become an issue. Like, like for example, like king crab, if you eat that, is not a crab. <laughs> King crab is not a crab? <laughs> it is a false crab. So it is not so, a true crab. It is in the same, like, general. It's a crustacean. <laughs> so what we're saying from an evolutionary standpoint is it does not share a common, the closest common ancestor of crabs and non-crabs oh, is, like, not the same? Are, it's like, no, it's like 300 million years ago was the closest. Uh, wow. Because yeah, because uh, normally you suspect is that there was a common ancestor that ancestor. was crab-like, and then it evolved into two different crabs. But what they're saying is there was a common ancestor at some point that was mm -hmm. not particularly crab-like, and they went off and diverged into two completely separate groups that looked very different from each other. And then over time, they converged back into both looking like crabs, but it was in, in, they independently came up with that body plan. Exactly. Awesome. So this has happened like at least five different groups of uh, like decapod crustaceans. Mm -hmm. So crabs with 10 legs or 10 appendages. Yeah, yeah. 10 legs, appendages. Uh, so like king crabs uh, as well as something called a porcelain crab, which are actually more related to lobsters. Okay. There's the stone crab and then hermit crabs actually as well oh, sure. are not true crabs, but they the, are the hermit, a hermit crabs are form. Pretty wild looking. They're, yeah, they're, they're their own wildness <laughs> here. Um, yeah, I don't have like a ton, but like all of these groups like evolved. They had one common ancestor over 300 million years ago. So there's been a ton of time for evolution, but the fact that it's happened within the crustacean group and these animals have gone from with different pressure, like similar pressures, I'm sure because they're all in the ocean. That is right, one right. common pressure yep. that they've gone from being like lobster like or shrimp like, and then have slowly turned more and more into a crab. It makes sense, right? When you are right. looking at a crab and you're in the ocean, you want to have, your, 
your underbelly protected with a, a carapace of sorts. Mm -hmm. You want to have your back protected with another carapace. Right. But it is wild that it, it keeps coming back. Um, it's to the point where there's actually been, um, there's been federal grants given out uh, to s study carcinization. It's been, the, the term, by the way, has been in use for like over 400 or 140 years, which is really cool. Cool. Um, yeah, which is wild. Well, I think I, uh, I would imagine speaking, also people are probably studying like if, if this is shown to be such a successful way, form of locomotion, as you start to look at building robots and, and rovers for other planets and stuff too, you go, huh, maybe we should right. look into some sort of decapod type design that looks like a crab. Um, and I've seen a lot of like people experimenting at home building robots and whatnot, and they'll make them mm -hmm. sort of more, actually usually they say spider-like. Spidery, of, but it, and it, it sounds, it looks like it looks like, looks a, like crab. a crab. And it really is a great form of locomotion, you know? And so it's, it's a tried and true design. I did kind of say at the beginning, sort of jokingly, that like, yeah, if there's alien life in space, it might be crab-like. I think the one thing to be careful here is that, you know, there's a lot of pop culture articles about, oh, all life mm. keeps on evolving into crabs. And you're like, well, right? no, it's this particular group of crustaceans that yeah, did have... Yeah, it's just crustaceans that are doing this, that yeah, have did similar have a common ancestor. pressures. So what would be really, you know, if we saw that, I, unlike your example of convergent evolution, which we do see where we have bats and insects and birds all evolving flight. If mm -hmm. we saw mammals and crustaceans and, you know, all these different groups that were all creating crabs, turning into crab shapes, that would be yeah. even wilder. And that would that actually wild, but that would be even more likely to say, okay, there's something just about this body that plan shape. that's good for life in general because we don't see you know mammals for instance that have this body no plan, we don't or birds or, or things like that it kind of points us more toward this is maybe the best design you can come up with with a crustaceans limited set of you know body parts to right. work with from for evolution um but you know Talking last week about sort of the pinnacle of evolution, it could be that mm -hmm. that is, you know, still the, the best right body plan, you know, that anything. Because there could have been other animals that tried to fill those niches that were not crustaceans and they got outcompeted mm -hmm. because this is just such an efficient uh, design for that particular habitat, for example. So, yeah, convergent evolution right. is super, super cool. Is is very cool. And besides all that, too. There are actually examples of uh, species like hermit crabs, which I already mentioned, going towards that crab shape and then also moving away mm -hmm. from that crab shape. Probably as, um, as the like, evolutionary pressures change, you know? Yeah, I mean, hermit crabs, they're famous for getting new like shells and everything and using those for their homes. Mm -hmm. That is a different way to solve the issue that a crab-like body would present for a crustacean exactly yeah creature in the first place so cool hey hey y'all nature's so complex wild. i don't know if you figured this out yet uh it is a wild strange complex system that we are so fortunate to be a part of and get to 
have the uh, intelligence and self-awareness to study. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. we are so lucky. <laughs> this is so amazing that we right? can just look around and and we were and, like, hmm, and and understand this stuff and be able to to study it in a way that uh, you know some other species can't. You know, and so right. Ugh, it's so like Harvard. So lucky. Oh, it's so cool. Like Harvard University, um, their evolutionary biology uh, department is looking into this actively. They just published a paper in uh, 2021 in the journal Bioessays, which I could not actually read. Uh, but <laughs> they had a couple. They had a couple of reasons, and their whole idea is not necessarily looking at like, oh, these species are doing that. They're looking at what drives crustaceans to, what are the pressures what that are, are in place to drive that, crustaceans yeah. to this shape in the first place. Cool. Yeah, because it should be, you it's should be able so to wild. study that, you know, especially if you mm -hmm. have a species with a, um, a fairly quick reproductive cycle. Obviously with things like bacteria we can, and insects, we can do it very quickly, but... It's so easy. If you have a... Yeah, but like crabs. ...fairly rapidly reproducing population, you can change some of those pressures and see... You can watch evolution happening. You can watch the bodies change, you know, from generation to generation and be like, oh, you know what? When the water is warmer, this happens. When the water is colder, this happens. When there is an abundance when there's more predators this happens when there's fewer predators this happens like right you can test all those things it takes time but we live in an age where there are people figuring these things out and you can't read all the research re research papers fast enough to learn everything that we're learning <sighs> so it's a very cool time to be alive we don't that's I, why we have this show so you can on, tune in uh, that is we'll why read we those have those papers issue. for you and let you know about all the uh, weird amazing stuff happening out there yeah, I'm going to end with this one quote from a researcher. Her name is uh, Joanna Wolf. She's one of the researchers at Harvard University. And I quote, she thinks of them as like Lego creations. They have many different components that can be swapped out without dramatically changing their features. So it's relatively straightforward for a cylindrical body to flatten out or vice versa. But for better or worse, humans won't be turning into crabs anytime soon. No, yeah, that's uh, kind of what we talked we just, about. Yeah, we just, we just, yeah, we don't, we don't have the right number of, of limbs <laughs> for for one. <laughs> no, we don't have the right body shape or anything we like that. We can't create a carapace. So, there's yeah, there's a few issues. Oh, yeah, but I so for one, I have a couple. Just sources. my shopping, my shopping habits alone uh, are oh my much God, harder to find clothes so that fit if, if we I had a crabs. couple limbs. Oh, um, I did have a couple sources that I'd like yeah, to cite it. this week. Uh, I used an article from Scientific American called Why Do Animals Keep Evolving Into Crabs, which was a beautiful. That just came out uh, June 1st. Uh, Wikipedia was helpful as always. And then an article from Newsweek. So that's all I have for y'all. Uh, yeah. Keep tuning in. We'll see you next week. Bye. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
you can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.